it's essential a little to look at, in a way, where are we going? What are we aiming for? Because I think then, I mean, what we are doing now, we are doing it for various kinds of intention, motivation, but I think it, it really helps, in a way, in certain ways, the energy of the practice. The inspiration of the practice is we can also look at it in a wider context of what is it for? In a way, in a wider context, what are we doing this for? What is, in a way, the, the idea behind it all? Because I think in terms of inspiration, what is it that inspires us? What kind of idea, what kind of, in a way, context inspires us? And also, in a way, what are we aspiring to? And sometimes I think it's important to reflect on those. Because sometimes when you sit in meditation and you really <laughs> can't meditate and your mind is all over the place or you're very uncomfortable, and I presume at that moment awakening is a further from where you are. But if you remember, in a way, what am I doing this for? Then I don't know, I think there would be a kind of, a, again, more spaciousness, also more energy to what we are doing, if we kind of look at it in this wider context. Because I think if we look at meditation, it seems to me there is two goals, two kinds of goals. There is what I would call the short-term, what the so-called ordinary type of goal, and there is also what I would call the long-term, what you could call the ultimate, the elevated goal of the practice. And I think both goals, and I know, as soon as I mention goal, I'm sure somebody here is thinking, thinking what about goallessness? <laughs> what about the fact that we do this for no goal? Wait, wait a minute, you know. I mean, are you saying you're doing this for no reason whatsoever? <laughs> I don't think so. Even though in the past is goalless, it seems to me there are some goals somewhere. You know, there are some reasons why we're doing it. There is some aspiration, some inspiration. There is some something somewhere motivating us. And I think the ordinary goals are very natural. I think are very good to have. And they're very much about progress. They're, they're kind of about us noticing if this is working. I think the ordinary goal is about the day-to-day noticing of, I mean, is this meditation doing something for me? And for everybody else as well, because if I am a better person and more peaceful, everybody else benefits. I don't know if you've noticed. You know, if you're with somebody who is quite happy and peaceful, it's quite nice to be with them. I mean, generally they don't bother you. They <laughs> give you a hard time. <laughs> So in a way, in terms of progress of meditation, I think, to me, it's about do we become more peaceful, do we become steadier, do we in a way feel that we have a better life, do we also feel that we're causing and creating less suffering to ourselves and others. This to me is one of the vital elements of that short-term ordinary goals of progress that I would hope that meditation would make a difference in terms of suffering. Because this is the first noble truth. <laughs> so it's kind of quite vital that it does something about it in terms of 
our inner conditions in terms of our outer conditions to me it's quite vital that something happens there and then of course there is the, the other type of goal, the second goal, which is what is called the ultimate goal, the elevated goal. And I think this is very important too, to bear it in mind, to bring it to the practice, this awakening. Because this is what this is about. You know, the Buddha, the name of the Buddha, is the awakened one. And body is awakening. So there is very much this idea that we wake up from a dream, from a torpor, from a certain blindness, from a, from a certain kind of sleepiness. And that awakening, the other side of awakening, of course, manifests as, in a way, being able to be as wise as we can, as compassionate as we can. So again, for me, awakening is not something abstract. It's something which actually manifests, can manifest in our daily life, that we can, in a way, manifest through this wisdom and compassion. And to, in a way, the degree that we, there is some awakening, I think to that degree there will be more or less wisdom and compassion activated in our daily life, that we can really manifest, and it's not just some kind of abstract which has little relevance to how we relate to ourselves and others. But when we think of enlightenment, and that's why I prefer to use the word awakening, because generally the word, the, the word one uses is enlightenment. You know that this is about enlightenment. But as soon as you say enlightenment, what do you think about? And often I have the feeling that people are sitting in meditation waiting for the light to go on. Like, you know, you kind of plug a switch and then whoa, and it's kind of like you have all these Christmas lights around you and you kind of start to float. It seems to be the two kind of strange images we have at the back of our mind. It's kind of interesting. And so you sit there and if you sit here trying to produce some light in some way or this floating feeling, then, in a way, it's, it's kind of a projection. Then you're not going to get it, then you think, well, you know, what is going on? So I think that's why it's relatively important to have a good idea of the context of when I'm practicing, what am I aiming for, what am I looking for? So if you look for something which actually is not going to happen because it's such a romantic, heroic, idealistic image, also kind of, you know, strange projection. Then you could be working very hard and never get that ideal, that projection. That's why I think we have to be very careful there. Because another thing we have about the meditation, the aim, the goal, the goalless goal, is that at some point we are going to get something. It is very interesting. So we sit here, sit here, and just we wait, we wait, and then suddenly we feel quiet, we feel clear, we feel different. Is it? Is it? Is it? I was sitting half of the time there, waiting, you know, for this something special that we're finally going to get. 
because we think once we get it, this is it. So then I don't have to sit anymore, and then the Mercedes and the Rolls Royce can start, and also the disciple and whatever you aim for in that uh, of that time. When it seems to me awakening, I feel it is a little different, and that's why I would like to mention these three symbols of awakening, which I think are very useful as images of what awakening is about. And these three symbols are what actually, when there is any ceremony, like in Korea when we used to have ceremony in the temple, we would give offerings to the Buddha. And the offerings would be, you would offer candles, you would offer incense, and you would offer water. And why would you offer these? Because they are symbols of awakening. And that's very interesting to look at, as these symbols. What are these? How does it work? Candle. So you, a candle, generally, you lit it. And so, the, so you offer the, the light of the candle. And what is, in a way, that candle representing? What is it a symbol of? It's actually the symbol of selflessness, because the candle gives light as it consumes itself. So as it disappears, it actually gives light. It illuminates. It clarifies. So here you have the two symbols of uh, awakening, selflessness, dissolution, and at the same time it is not an empty black space, but through that dissolution, there is clarity, there is illumination. There is, we can see very clearly what is going on. There is a certain brightness. Incense, again, it's the same. Incense, when you leave the incense and then you start to have its fragrance, then two things happen. First is that in order for the incense to give its fragrance, it has to consume itself. Again, a symbol of selflessness. But as it disappears, actually we benefit from it. That's also a symbol of compassion. And what is interesting with this fragrance of the incense is that it spreads everywhere. The incense doesn't say to the fragrance, oh, don't go to that guy, he's really ugh, but go to this one, he looks so much better. There is no hindrance, there is no limitation. The fragrance of the incense will spread everywhere and everyone will benefit from it. So again, this idea of vastness, of width, of openness, of spaciousness. And then there is the water. And the water is, a, again, there is two symbols there, very interesting. One is reflection. That actually you offer water, because it's the water of life but also because it has that ability to reflect. And the water, when you have a, a piece of water, it reflects anything. And again, it doesn't choose, it doesn't say, oh, this is ugly, I don't want to reflect it. Oh, this is wonderful, I want to reflect it. Not at all. Anything that comes in front of the water will be just reflected just as it is. And as soon as that goes, and nothing remains in the water. It is just pure and clear again. So again, this idea of transparency, of total reflectivity without any grasping. 
And then we walk the truth, which I think is very vital with awakening, is a symbol of fluidity, of adaptability, that actually the water is very fluid. You put it into a round ball, it is round shape. You put it into a square ball, it is a square shape. It is always fluid, it is very adaptable. And I think this is the way what awakening helps us to have more choices, to be more fluid, to be more adaptable. So in a way I think this image shows us that awakening is not about getting something special. But actually it's about losing, it's about dissolving, it's about relinquishing. And actually what is interesting is not about getting rid of things we, we need. It's very interesting, it's getting rid of things we don't need but that we have. So at that level it could be not so difficult since we don't need all these things. It could be relatively easy to relinquish. Who knows it? <laughs> Unfortunately, we seem to be attached to them, but that's another matter that we can look at in that, possibly a little more now. And what I find interesting in terms of awakening of the past and its fruit is this notion in the Theravada tradition of the four stages that the Buddha said in, uh, in awakening, there are four stages of awakening. And he gave those stages and he told you at each stage what happened. And what is interesting is that at each stage, something goes. It's not that at each stage of awakening you get something, not at all. At each stage something goes. So in a way, you're losing more and more what you don't need. And so in the first stage, what goes is belief in self, belief in rites and rituals, and doubt. And so in a way the first thing is when we have this inkling, I mean it might not, it's not necessarily a permanent state, but it's when we have this experience, this understanding, this knowledge, this perception, this knowing that we are not an independent, solid, fixed self. Because this is one of the great obstacles, when, what causes suffering to us. This idea that we are fixed, we are solid, we are separate. And at that stage we kind of realize that actually it's not that there is nothing. And I think when I have to be careful, meditation and awakening is not about you suddenly disappearing in a puff of smoke. I don't expect all of you to disappear by the end of the retreat. That's not the aim of what we're doing here. But actually what we realize is that there is a functional self. So what goal is it this independent, separate sense of self? Because if there is an independent sense of self, then you want to protect it, you want to hold on to it. But if you realize it's not there, and there is nothing to stick to. And so what you have then is a very functional, operational sense of self, which is very fluid, like the water, very adaptable. And you realize at that stage 
that you are actually a flow of conditions. And to me that's part of the gift of meditation is the discovery of the conditions that makes us at any given moment. And the more we meditate, the more we realize we are this amazing flow of conditions. Totally inner and outer flow of conditions that meet together. And I mean, what we eat, what we breathe, our deal of our parents, what my experience, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's infinite. But if you just start to reflect on the conditions that form you, it's amazing. It's so infinite. And that's what this losing this belief in self does. It's not that you are left with nothing. On the contrary, you're left with this amazing array of multifaceted kind of perspective of yourself. So you're not so stuck, so solid anymore. Then belief in right and ritual go. And there it means that you can use right and ritual, but you don't see them as end in themselves. You realize that Awakening does not depend on right and ritual. They are just there. Again, it's functional. You can have a ceremony together. You can have right and ritual together. I mean, here, I mean, we have a ritual. Sitting together, walking together. This is our ritual. That's what, in a way, we agree to do together. Often, ritual is what we agree to do together. So, it's kind of a common activity together. But in a way, we don't see that an end in itself. We kind of, in a way, go beyond the ritual. We can use it, but this is not the end of the path. It is not enough. So the belief in it goes, even though we can use it. And then doubt goes at the first stage. And doubt is not what I'm going to bring tomorrow, because tomorrow I'm going to bring the great doubt which is very different from this doubt. The doubt that goes is vacillation. Is it when at that first stage of awakening, you suddenly have total faith in yourself in the practice. That is, as I say, you never retrograde, you never go back. Because you have experienced yourself, your potential. You also have experienced the potential of the practice, your felt its effect. So you know you start from for the problem with doubt is that it makes you vacillate. It kind of gives you a lack of direction, a lack of steadiness. And so when you let go of doubt, you actually can grow with faith. You have very much this amazing faith in yourself, in your potential, and in the practice that you too, you can do it. Not only special people can do it, but anybody can do it. And I think this is quite an essential part of the practice. Often, like in the Zen tradition, they say the practice starts when you start to have great faith. Great faith in your own Buddha nature, in a way. And then you have the second stage. And at the second stage, because these are two kind of a bit stuck uh, things, then they just are weakened. So at the second stage, what is weakened is greed and hatred. And I would say that at that stage, 
what we term is a gross manifestation of greed and hatred. And I think this is something we can easily actually experience and work with and have some kind of, maybe not a total experience of its weakening, but we can start to work on weakening these two things, greed and hatred, because I think that's what the meditation is about. And what is this greed? And I think this greed is the feeling that we have. I want this now. How often do you feel this? In a smaller way or in a big way? And to me this starts very early on. And I can see this again and again in my niece. I have this lovely niece. She's three years old and now that I am in France I can spend a lot of time with her. And she kind of likes me for some reason. So we spend a lot of time together. And often comes a moment when she says in French, je envie, which means I would like. And it's very interesting because when she starts to say that, I think, uh-uh. Because generally she says, I would like this. And I generally say, well, I am too tired, I can't do this, or whatever it is. I kind of generally have some kind of a reason not to do it. And so she says it, generally it's interesting, she says it three times. You know, so she said, I would like da 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 da, and I said, where da 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 da, and she said, I would like, <laughs> and it gets stronger each time. And by the third time, this is it. If I don't do it, old hell is going to drop loose, and she's going to cry and make a tantrum. And I am not a good Buddhist auntie, and I generally give it. <laughs> but I think it's very interesting. To, ex- to see this in a small time, this kind of, I would like this, I want this, and generally I want it now, and I can't wait a second. It is very interesting that the, the vibration that arises from this, in a way, what I would call gross manifestation of grief. And in a way for us is to work with that, because it is very intense. And of course, as we become adults, we can slightly, up to a point, recognize we can't have what we like all the time, but we would like to win it with. And this is interesting, that kind of, you know, recognition we can't, but we want. Because in a way, what you set up is that you say, I want this for myself, so I need it now. It's very interesting how you start out with, I want this because of whatever reason you're attracted to it, it's a good idea or whatever, you're getting all kinds of reasons. And how that turns into, I need it. And if I need it, I mean, I need it now, otherwise I'm going to. And it's interesting, the feeling you have is like, if I don't get this, I'll die. Which is really don't. But that's a feeling you create. And then it's kind of like a search that has to be satisfied. So in a way, at that second stage, this goes, that kind of gross manifestation of I want, this kind of really kind of strong desire. And then also what is, what is weakened is the hatred, the gross manifestation of hatred. And this is interesting, how does it manifest? And the way it manifests in our life is generally I hate this. 
And generally we won't say I hate this, but generally we say, I cannot stand this. How often do you say that? You cannot stand your thoughts, you cannot stand certain feelings, you cannot stand some people, you cannot stand some situation. And it's interesting, as soon as you say, I cannot stand this, this is it. You know, you don't want it, you don't want to see it, you don't want, you reject it. And I think that's what hatred comes from, this total rejection of something, total annihilation of something. And you know, at that stage, what happens by weakening greed and desire, then we don't feel so impelled by desire. We are not the slave of our desire. We bring spaciousness within that kind of wanting. And also within the hatred, within this, I cannot stand this, pushing things very strongly away. Then I think, come this respect for life, recognizing that we have to share life, and recognizing too of diversity. Because I think a lot of hatred is just actually a lot of very self-centeredness. Kind of, kind of, again, due to this attachment to yourself, that's where hatred will come. So because the belief in self goes, then it's much easier for the hatred to go. And then you have much more that open heartedness where you recognize life, you share it, you respect it, you respect diversity. <coughs> and then you have the third stage, which is the stage where you dissolve totally greed and hatred. And I think at that level, you dissolve the most subtle manifestation of that. And then I think it's even something we can consider now, and not wait for awakening later on, but to kind of look in our lives. How what happens is that there seems to be the tendency we have to stick. We seem to stick. It's like we seem to be gooey. So anything, somebody says something to us, or we feel something, or we feel something, and then we stick to it. And that sticking to something generally is associated with an identification. And through that, there is this exaggeration of it. I think to me, this is what we need to notice how we grasp at things, how we stick to whatever through the senses, grasping at the thoughts, grasping at the sight, grasping at the sound, grasping at the feeling, grasping at the person, grasping at anything. And I think the dissolution of the grasping doesn't mean that we cannot be with him. On the contrary, it gives us freedom to be with him, to engage with him in a different way. But without that stickiness, which kind of exaggerates the thing itself, and also reduce us, maybe I'll uh, demonstrate a little what happens. So when we grasp at something, let's say this is I don't know, something which belongs to me and I think it's mine or whatever. So, I grasp at it. And if I do this, what happens? Two things happen. One, I get a cramp in the arm. <laughs> and second, I cannot use my hand. And when we grasp, that's what happens. We grasp at the thought, we identify with the thought, 
and we do we use ourselves to it. We grasp at the feeling, we identify ourselves to it, and we dance around it, and we reduce ourselves to it. And by doing this, we reduce our potential to that one feeling, so we feel like an unruly cat, because we're so small. And then, through us becoming small, the feeling becomes huge. And we, and in a way, dissolving that makes us realize that we are in contact with things, but in a different way. There is spaciousness, there is openness. And also, in a way, as that said, stage, a hatred totally goes. And it's what I would call grasping negatively. You see, by grasping at something you like, I would call this grasping positively. You grasp in a positive way, in a way. And when you grasp at something negatively, you reject it. But by rejecting it, you still grasp at it. If you, let's say you really, you kind of, you know, dislike somebody or something is unpleasant. So you push it away. But by pushing it away, you keep thinking about it, don't you? But let's say there is somebody you don't like. So you kind of push them away, but they still in your kind of uh, surrounding. And you think about them all the time. Well, I mean, they're not asked you to think about them all the time. They're doing their own thing. They don't come and bother you all the time. But we are totally stuck on them. So although we reject them, we don't like them, we don't want them, that we grasp negatively, so we have them in our mind. And so at that stage, that goes. In a way, we start to have this, what I would call this wise acceptance of unpleasantness. Because I think this is one of the things we have the hardest time with, is unpleasant. Unpleasant thought, unpleasant feeling, unpleasant encounter, unpleasant smell, whatever it is. It's unpleasant. I don't want it. How did it do with the hot potatoes at lunchtime? <laughs> I had this kind of difficult encounter. I love potato, but I can't have chili. So I kind of had this interesting kind of positive grasping and negative grasping at the same time going on. So, in a way, when something is unpleasant, what do we do? We push it away. So by pushing it away, actually, we give it more strength. Instead of being with it wisely, accepting it wisely, that's what, in a way, the self-stage is about. And then you would think, what's next? And this is what is interesting. To me, the fourth stage is very interesting. Considering there are so many people who say they're enlightened. I mean, in Tottenham, you have lots of gurus saying they're enlightened. Like <laughs> some too, you know, in various parts of the world too, you have people say, I am enlightened, follow me. And what is interesting in the fourth stage is, the fourth stage, what is left? What goes? And what still has to go is conceit, restlessness, and ignorance. And conceit is saying, I am this, I am that. So as soon as somebody says they're enlightened, be careful. They've not gone to the fourth stage, that's for sure. Because in a way, conceit is about identifying with the condition, with the state, with an experience. It's saying, I am this, I am that. Even that 
has to go. So although the belief itself is gone, that does not stop you from identifying with a condition, a state, or an experience. Restlessness too has to go. This kind of unsettledness, this excitement, this idea there is something more round the corner, that too goes. And ignorance goes. And ignorance is ignorance of the three characteristics that we finally, totally experience and know that things are impermanent and changing, that things are unreliable and not always satisfactory, and that things are truly conditioned. And in a way, this is the fourth stage, that in a way, each places we lose something. So awakening is not so much about gaining something. It's actually about letting go of something we don't really need. And in a way, are realizing that. And I think, to me, what the fourth stage is, I know, I'm not talking about then in order to discourage you, kind of thinking, you know, I have to get rid of all this. But for me, I find it very interesting, because to me, it's kind of showing that the practice is so much more, can be so much more creative, can be so multifaceted, multifaceted, that in a way, there is lots of work to do, and that makes the path interesting. It's not this kind of, you know, straight on target, it's that there is so many different aspects to the past, different aspects to ourselves, to our condition that we can work on, that we can play with, that we can experiment with. So personally, when I see the four stages, I think, oh yeah, there are all these different places I can work with. So I did not talk about that in order to discourage you, but on the contrary, to encourage you, I hope. So that in a way, what we're doing is a lifelong practice something that we can do in our daily lives, something we can do on retreat, because there is all these different aspects we can practice. Another thing I wanted to bring up, which in a way is the other side of this uh, kind of uh, talk about awakening, is actually looking in the Buddhist tradition, the evolution and the development of the idea of Buddhahood and awakening. So this is very interesting. Because it is not just one idea of what Buddhahood is, or what awakening is. If you go to different Buddhist traditions, they will tell you very different things. And so I like to look at the evolution of it. And at the beginning uh, of the Buddhist tradition, they saw that kind of the awakened one, the Buddha, could only be one person, and it could only be one person after many, many, many lifetimes. So in way to become a Buddha, to become a fully awakened one, you have to practice eons and eons and lifetime and lifetime and then the last life, and that's for the ladies, the last time, the last life, one has to be a man. So lady, you can forget in this lifetime. <laughs> so that's one kind of uh, way of looking at it. Then over time, as Buddhism evolved, then it started to have this idea that actually it's still the idea that the Buddha is over many lifetimes, but that you can become a Buddha in this lifetime. And then it's starting to see the Buddhahood as a seed, as a potential within each of us. 
But each of us as a seed within themselves, the seed of awakening, the seed of Buddhahood. So then what you have to do is to cultivate <coughs> that seed, to give it manure, to give it compost, to give it water, and then slowly it will grow, and then it will blossom into, in a way, the flower of awakening. If you really practice very diligently over the last time. And then there comes this other later on tradition, which says, well, wait a minute, it's not even like that. And they say, no, we are enlightened already. So we've got it. I mean, this is, you know, instant awakening. And so what they see in that tradition is that all of us, that the Buddhahood is not a seed. But the Buddhahood is our nature. That each of us has Buddha nature. And then, in a way, what we're doing is trying to remove what stops the Buddhahood from uh, the Buddha nature from shining forth. So, in a way, then when we practice, we try to, what we're doing is, again, not gaining something, not kind of bringing things in, but more as we practice, trying to, you know, create a space in which our Buddha nature can fully manifest because it is there. And the only thing it needs to do is to manifest itself. And, and of course the Zen tradition is, uh, is the third one. But what was interesting, when I uh, went to Korea to do some research on uh, Buddhism and women, is that I met a man who was part of this, uh, who kind of had even a kind of, who uh, followed this school. Because this Buddha nature is very much part of the Zen school and various other schools. But there is even one more, one school, which comes from the Avatamsaka Sutra, which is a special text. And in this text, there is this famous kind of saying that sentient beings are Buddhas, and Buddhas are sentient beings. And that's where this, also this idea of the Buddha nature being there already come from. And when I went in Korea to uh, interview nuns, I met this nun. And I asked her about her practice and what she did and what was her life like. And she was uh, kind of a teacher uh, in a university. And I said, oh, what did, how did you start? She said, well, I started out by being a nun and doing the, uh, in Korea stuff, you have to study the text and then you go and practice. And she said, you know, I would study the text and then I had this idea that when I studied the text for three or four years and I would practice very hard, go to a hermit page, get enlightened and then save everybody. I mean, this is you know, the idea. The monk and the nun, that's what you kind of generally go for. And so she go and study the sutra and then she kind of starts to study the Avatamsaka Sutra. And she reads this sentence, this kind of verse that sentient beings are Buddha. Buddha is a sentient being. She says, yeah, that's true. I am a Buddha. This is it. I don't need to go and practice in a hermitage. I don't need to save it, to wait to save everybody. I can do it now. So then she did not go to practice in the mountains. And then she became a lecturer in the Buddhist university. Her specialty, of course, is to teach the Avatamsaka Sutra. So I said to her, but what's your practice? What do you do? And she said, ah, in the morning, 
aia gatata e dumaia vitola ea tu doa zana and then as I go out of the house I have the kind of intention that today I am going to fully display the manif- the, uh, fully manifest the wisdom and compassion of the Buddha so that's your practice in a way to be a Buddha you know second by second so to try to have to manifest the wisdom and compassion of the Buddha as he go about her daily life go on the bus teach us to try meet people do our shopping so you try to to kind of be a Buddha as he does that and then when she comes back in the evening she renews her day because that's also part of her practice because the thing says Sentient beings are Buddhas, but Buddhas are also sentient beings. So in a way, at the end of the day, he reviewed how Buddha-like he, he had been during the day. And then kind of see where maybe she kind of slipped a little here and there. So tomorrow she's going to try, you know, a little better here and there. And that's her practice. In a way, to be a Buddha is her practice, moment to moment. I stop here, but I finish just with this, uh, this uh, just quote from uh, a Zen master from the 12th century in China called Master Tawei. And what is interesting with Master Tawei is that he was a great, um, he had a lot of connection with lay people. And the practice I will introduce tomorrow was very much inspired and created by him so that lay people could really do it very easily. It was an easy practice for lay people. And so he had a great connection with lay people, and so he would have a lot of correspondence with them. They would write him letters, he would write back. And actually, the only teaching we have of him is all these letters that were sent, the letters and copies, the letter he sent and the letter he received. And so this is one of the, a quote from one of the letters he sent into a lay person. And so that's what he says. Your letter informs me that your root nature is dim and dull. The one who can recognize dim and dull is definitely not dim and dull. So, let's finish here. Are there any questions or comments? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.